This evening, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, as we are going to look into God's word and see, I think, some difficult lessons. Uh, In John chapter 3, just to begin with, it's probably one of the most known passages in all the scripture, and I think you probably know which one it is, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And this is all born out of a Pharisee named Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And he, was, he recognized there's something different about this guy, about Jesus, and he wanted to know more about him. And Jesus lays it all out for this religious leader. He basically tells him, it doesn't matter how good you are, how religious you are, you must be born again. And Nicodemus didn't get it. And Jesus goes on to explain that it's more than just a natural birth. You must be born again. It's a spiritual birth. And the spiritual birth comes from above. It's from God, and we receive it by faith. And Jesus gives to Nicodemus a picture of the work that he was about to do. And the picture, he goes back to the Old Testament, which obviously Nicodemus was very familiar with. And it's the picture of Israel in the wilderness. They're there complaining. It's kind of a normal thing for them to do. And God sent fiery serpents upon them for this judgment because of their unbelief. And if they were bit, they just died. And they finally recognized their sin. They cried out to the Lord. They cried out to Moses, and he interceded. And God said to Moses, put a bronze serpent on a pole, and whoever is bit by these snakes, if you look upon this bronze serpent on the pole, you're going to be healed. Now, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, right? I mean, think about it. You're bit by a poisonous snake. Everyone is dying who's bit. And now Moses says, hey, just look upon that bronze serpent on a pole, you'll be healed. Are you kidding me? And if they didn't believe, they died. And look at people today. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, went to the cross of Calvary, paid in full the penalty for our sins to give us eternal life. Are you kidding me? I need a doctor, I need some medicine, I need this, I need that. No, you need Jesus to heal you of your sins for that spiritual birth. And again, if you you reject that, then you're not going to be healed of your sins and you will spend eternity apart from Jesus. Now, what we're going to look at this evening in our study of John, we're going to see John the Baptist and his disciples have an encounter with some of the Jews about the ministry of Jesus growing. And as you read this, it almost seems out of place from what John was just talking about, speaking to Nicodemus and all. But I think the point is simple. You see, once you come to that saving faith, you're born again, then it's a life of complete surrender to the Lord. It's not my will, but his will that needs to be done in each of our lives. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you, at the moment that you were saved, and here you are now, maybe a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or whatever, down the road, have you continued a life of complete surrender to the Lord? And I think we could all say, oh, I missed that mark. <laughs> I, I, I try, but I, I failed. Why? Because we like to be in control of our lives. We like to know what's going to happen, and we think we know what's best, and that kind of mentality usually gets us into trouble. God has what's best for our lives, and I'm not saying that it's the easiest path to take, because most of the time it's not, but it's the best one as he molds and shapes our lives to be, in the, to be the men and women he wants us to be. 
And again, surrender is hard. The definition of surrender is to yield, to give up oneself into the power of another. And I guess, you know, giving ourselves, surrendering to others is a difficult thing. But surrendering to God, is it that difficult? Well, it is because he challenges us all the time. Many of you have heard of Roger Staubach. He was a quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys, led the Cowboys to a championship in 1971. And he didn't like the fact that he didn't call his own signals, his own plays. And it was a real trial for him. Every play that he did came from Coach Landry. He was told when to pass, when to run. In emergency situations, yeah, he could do whatever he wanted. He could change the play, but he better have called the right one. That's a lot of pressure, right? And he felt that Tom Landry was a genius when it came to football strategy. What was the problem? It was pride for Roger Staubach. It kept telling him that he should be able to run his own team. He was the quarterback. And he later said, I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. You see, he understood that obedience, or I should say the lack of obedience to his coach, was a pride issue. But once he was able to deal with that pride and surrender to the plans of his coach, once he learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. And I think that's the key for us. When we refuse to surrender to the Lord, when we want to do what we want to do, it's pride. We're telling God we know better. Now, we don't think of it like that, but if God tells us to do something and we say no, what are we saying? Well, God, you're wrong, and I think I've got a better plan than you do. Not at all. That's pride. And so the study this evening, as we look here in John chapter 3, I've titled it Absolute Surrender. And I think it's important for us not only to hear that, but to apply it to our lives. And i kind of broken this down into four main points, and I'll repeat these as we're going through them. But the setup in John 3, verses 22 through 24, the confrontation in John 3, 25 through 26, Absolute surrender in John 3, 27 through 30, and then the correct perspective in John 31, 331 through 36. Now, let me share these words with you from Andrew Murray. And what he's going to talk about is born out of what took place in 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 1 through 4. And I want to read these to you, and then I'll share with you what Andrew Murray had to say. He said, Now Ben Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him with horses and chariots. And he went up and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. And this is what Andrew Murray said regarding that. He said, When Ben-Hadad asked what What Ben-Hadad asked was absolute surrender. And what Ahab gave was what was asked of him, absolute surrender. I want to use these words, my Lord, O King, according to thy saying, I am yours and all that I have, as the words of absolute surrender with which every child of God ought to yield himself to his father. We've heard it before, but we need to hear it very definitely. The condition of God's blessing is absolute surrender of all into his hands. Praise God. If our hearts are willing for that, there is no end to what God will do for us and to the blessing God will bestow. Absolute surrender 
Let me tell you where I got those words. I use them myself often, and you have heard them numberless times. But in Scotland, once I was in a company where we were talking about the condition of Christ's church and what the great need of the church and of believers is. And there was in our company a godly worker who has much to do in training workers. And I asked him what he would say was the great need of the church and the message that ought to be preached. And he answered very quietly and simply and determinately, absolute surrender to God is the one thing. The word stuck with, stuck, struck me as never before. And the man began to tell how in all in the works with whom he had to deal, he finds that if they are sound on that point, even though they may be backward, they are willing to be taught and helped, and they always improve. Whereas others who are not sound, they very often go back and leave the work. The condition for obtaining God's full blessing is absolute surrender to him. And that's so true. Why are these blessings of God as we surrender him? Why are they there? Because apart from them, we're doing our own thing, and there's consequences to our actions. I'm not saying that if you surrender completely to the Lord that you'll never have problems or sickness or anything else, but he will bless you as you go through those times, just as like he did with Job. But there's consequences if we don't. Way back in 1986, in the summer, there were two ships that collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. And hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters. And news of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It's interesting. It wasn't a technology problem like radar malfunction or even thick fog. You know what the cause was? Stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have stayed clear. But according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the others. Each was too proud to yield first. And by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. That's tragic. But isn't that true in our own lives that when we refuse to surrender our lives to the Lord, submit to him, by the time we come to our senses many times, we're in the midst of a very difficult situation and sometimes a tragic one, all because we refuse to listen to his voice, to believe that he knows better than we do. And again, this is a tough study, but I think we're going to see John the Baptist was willing to submit. He was willing to surrender his life to the Lord. It wasn't just talk, but there was action on his part. So let's pick up John chapter 3, starting in verse 22, and let's see what the Lord has for us this evening as we study his word. We're told this. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. I call these verses, verses 22 through 24, the setup. And What's transpiring here is setting up for what's going to take place next, obviously. And the Lord does that in our lives, doesn't he? He brings things into our lives to set us up for what he's going to do next. But it's also going to be up to us as individuals to obey what the Lord is showing us, or we could do our own thing, which isn't good. Here, John is focusing on the work Jesus did in the area of Judea, while the other Gospels pretty much focus on the work he did in the region of Galilee. And here in Judea, Jesus 
he's not really baptizing, but his disciples are. Um, and John the Baptist was also baptizing, not in the same area. But keep in mind, John the Baptist had this huge following. In Matthew 3, verses 5 through 6, we're told, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. So he had a huge following. I mean, think about it. I always think of John the Baptist as a hippie before his time. You know, he had the long hair. He had the big leather belt. He's eating natural food, you know, locust and honey. And all these people are coming in the middle of nowhere to be baptized by him. It was so bad that the Jewish religious leaders had to go find out what this guy was doing. This was not just a few people. But we also see Jesus come on the scene. And both the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John are baptizing people. Jesus in the area of Judea, like I said, John the Baptist in Anon near Salim. We're not exactly sure where that was located. Many people feel it was Shechem in Samaria outside of Judea. And one of the reasons John the Baptist was there is given to us in John 3.23. There was a lot of water there. Yes, yeah, easy to baptize. You got a lot of people coming. You could baptize them. But here's a distance now between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of Jesus. And I think John is giving Jesus the preeminence to conduct his ministry closer to Jerusalem. He wasn't in competition with Jesus. So here we have the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. They're kind of overlapping at this time, but that's only for a short period of time. But trouble could arise out of this whole situation as word spreads to John the Baptist of what Jesus is doing. And again, this is the setup, and we're being set up now for the confrontation. Look at verse 25 here in John chapter 3. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. I'm always amazed, and I really shouldn't be, but I am, at how God is doing a work. And many times because of jealousy, others come against it. And because of that, sometimes the work comes to end. Satan is a master at dividing and conquering. And for us as Christians, it shouldn't be. We should be excited as God uses others for the work he's doing. We should be excited as God raises someone up to do a work. And please understand that we all have to deal with this from time to time. Even those who are popular in ministry, those who people look up to. You know, Dr. F.B. Meyer told the following experience. He said, it was easy, he said, to pray for the success of Campbell Morgan when he was in America. But when he came back to England and took a church near to mine, it was somewhat different. The old Adam in me was inclined to jealousy, but I got my heel upon his head and whether I felt right toward my friend or not, I determined to act right. My church gave a reception for him, and I acknowledged if it was necessary for me to preach Sunday evenings. I would dearly love to go and hear him myself. Well, that made me feel right toward him. Just see how the dear Lord helped me out of that difficulty. 
There was Charles Spurgeon preaching wonderfully on the other side of me. He and Mr. Morgan were so popular and drew such crowds that our church caught the overflow and we had all we could accommodate. Was it easy? No, why? Because the flesh was getting in the way. You know, I'm here, now these guys come and look at they're taking people away. And he had to deal with that flesh nature. Now, let me say this. It's never about us. It's never about, it's always about the Lord and what he's doing. What I've noticed over the years is, you know, pastors today kind of want to be rock stars. You know, they want to be somebody. They want to be recognized wherever they go. They want the popularity. And you know, when you start doing that, you end up compromising to draw the people in. You end up compromising by making friends with people that are not necessarily Christians. And you have to be careful here. And this could have been trouble. You see, some Jews, as well as news coming back of what Jesus and his disciples were doing, came to the disciples of John the Baptist and they were jealous. You got to do something about this. Look what's happening. You know, John the Baptist had that huge following. Things were great. You know, I'm sure there was a lot of praise the Lord. Look at what God is doing. This is awesome. Praise the Lord. Look at all these people coming. Judea, all over the area. But now, their following is shrinking. People are starting to go to Jesus. And they saw Jesus in competition with them. And they didn't like it. And they go and tell their leader. They go and tell John the Baptist about this. Why? So he could rectify the problem. You know, jealousy can grow. It could be very destructive. And we have to be careful and rest in the Lord. Rejoice what God is doing through other Christians and Christian ministries because it's not all about us. And you know, we'll deal with that in a few minutes here. But it's something we have to be aware of. You know, the flesh is very deceptive. Now, have you ever felt, you know, I'm doing good. And then all of a sudden, Something happens, and that flesh is like there in an instant, and the things you say, the things you do, go, oh my gosh, what happened? You weren't paying attention. You got to pay attention, because the devil loves to resurrect that flesh nature in us. Be careful. You know, remember the story of King Saul, and his jealousy over a young man named David, young kid, really. And it caused many problems in the life of Saul. And it did affect David. David loved Saul. He respected him because God had placed him king in Israel. And David blessed King Saul in many different ways. But those blessings, how David was blessing him, became jealousy upon Saul. David became a mighty warrior. But King Saul was upset because David was getting more praises than He was. And then when he killed Goliath, oh man. Saul has slaved his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. Hey, wait a minute, I'm the king. What are you doing? This is just a little kid here. You're giving him more praise than me? You see, it was all about him and not about what God was doing. And it got so bad for Saul that he wants to kill David, to get rid of this troublemaker. And David wasn't the troublemaker. He was a young man that was used mightily by God. And because of that, Saul was jealous. 
And he wanted to end David's life. And that's what jealousy does, guys. It it destroys relationships and friendships and marriages and churches. And you get the idea. And that sin of jealousy in King Saul's life brought destruction to his own life as well. And it affected others. And this could have been a huge problem with the disciples of John. They were jealous. They were upset. Who's more popular? I thought it was all about us. Now, it's interesting that they were supposed to be doing the work of who? The work of God. And they're not happy with what's going on right now. What was the ministry of John the Baptist? To prepare the hearts of the people for the coming Messiah, right? Who's Jesus? Oh, he's the Messiah. So now that the Messiah has come, their work needed to fade away because it's all about Jesus, right? But they didn't see it that way, and they're upset. What, what is John going to do now when he gets this news? We'll see that in a minute here. Because John could have allowed this to bring jealousy into his own heart, or he could have used it to bring healing with the situation. And so here the disciples of John bring their concerns to John the Baptist. And this is how he responds. Look at verse 27 here in John chapter 23, or John 3, excuse me. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And this, we're going to deal with this whole issue because I see absolute surrender coming from the heart of John here. And again, the disciples of John the Baptist are concerned of what was going on. What They were losing out. The people following them were decreasing and they were following Jesus now. So how John the Baptist answered this is really important. I like what he says. He reminds them, guys, 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 chill here. Everything we have is a gift from God. It's, we're nothing apart from God. So understand, all that we have is from God. Get that perspective. Because it's not about us. It's what God wants to do. And I think then we could become thankful. Now from there, John talks about a wedding, a Jewish wedding. And he's saying in a sense that he's the best man at this wedding of Jesus and his followers. And it's more important for the bride to come to the bridegroom than the best man. Right? It would be really bad if the bride went to the best man at the wedding. That's not good. So John's making this real easy illustration here. Look, the bride is there for the bridegroom. These people are moving away from us because I'm the best man. I'm not the bridegroom. Jesus is. Do you see how he's getting them to refocus that jealousy to get it out of their hearts and say, hey, what we have is a gift of God and it's all about Jesus. And he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
those seven words are at the heart or should be at the heart of any true ministry that Jesus is lifted up, that people are drawn to him and not us. We have to have Jesus more visible, greater in our lives, and less of us. Less of that flesh life coming through. And again, and I tell the people in our congregation, look, don't ever say, Pastor Joe said. See, this is what the word of God says. Don't always, I'm not going to always be here. But God is. So I will teach you the things of God, but you, as an individual, need to bring your requests before God. You need to seek God so you can grow. Because really, if, it, if everyone comes to me to seek their solutions to all their problems, when I die, where are they going to go? And I haven't taught them anything then. I haven't taught them how to rely and trust in God. That's what a pastor is to do. They bring God to the people and the people to God. It's that simple. He must increase. I must decrease. Now, Bruce said, John betrays no sense of envy or rivalry. It is not easy to see another's influence growing at the expense of one's own. It is even less easy to rejoice at the sight, but John found his joy completed by the news which his disciples brought. You know, again, can you imagine, John, all these people are going to Jesus, we're losing out here. And he's pretty much praised God. Wow. Lord, help me to have a heart that rejoices when ministries are doing well and people are getting saved and they're growing in the Lord. And not to be jealous. And I think the whole idea, and we're going to focus on this for a few minutes, is absolute surrender. And when I look at it, I think there's three main points with absolute surrender. It's got to be upward. It's got to be inward, and then it's got to be outward in actions. And the upward one, you have to start somewhere, right? And the best place to start, the only place to start in regard to submission, is upward. Submitting to God, recognizing who he is and giving him the honor that's due his name. Look again at verses 27 and 28 here in John chapter 3. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. This is so important. It's a correct perspective to have. We can do nothing without the Lord. He's enabled us to serve him. And I'll tell you, if you don't get your relationship right with God, then everything else is going to be a mess. This is the most important thing. Because if there are areas in our, your heart, and there's areas in all our hearts that need to be dealt with, it needs to be shown to us by God's spirit as we're reading his word or he's speaking to our hearts. And what a joy it is to serve the Lord. You know, Revelation 4.11, this is from the King James Version. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I like that. Do you realize that we were created to bring pleasure to God? 
Now, we, I think what we've developed a lot of times in the church today is this consumer mentality. You know, what do you have for me? What, what's on the menu for today? What do you have here? What do you have there? And we're consumers. We're, we're not consumers. Do you realize that every single person in a church is part of the body of Christ? And the body is to function. Every part is important. You know, can you imagine if the foot was angry? Because, man, it's in the shoe and sock all day. I want to be somebody. I want to be a hand or something, you know? Especially an Italian person who talks with his hands all the time. No, the feet are important. How am I going to get around without feet? Every single part of the body of Christ is important. It's valuable. There is not one part that is more important than any other. I shared with our congregation, you know what? I'm not more important than anyone else here in the body of Christ. We all work together. And we're created to bring pleasure to God as we serve him. And we can't do anything apart from him. Paul says in Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Man, every day we wake up is a gift to God. Every single day. We have no guarantees in life how long we're going to live, uh, but man, we have another day to serve him. You know, my son called me. My wife's out in Colorado uh, watching the grandkids, and my son and daughter-in-law are there. They're leaving, I think, tomorrow for Tennessee for a few days. And uh, my son called me tonight, and he said, so, Dad, when are you going to retire? He said, in a, he said, he told me, a few years? I said, I don't know yet. My retirement plan, don't tell him, is to say amen and go home to be with the Lord. That's pretty much my retirement plan. You know, sorry. I, I know what God called me to do. And as long as I have breath and, I'm, and my mind is working, you know, sometimes that's a little debatable. But as long as my mind is working, I want to share God's word. You know, when Dwight called me today, say, hey, Joe, can you, can you um, teach tonight? I'm like, absolutely. Anytime I get an opportunity to share God's word, I'll be there. As long as I'm able. And what a gift we have. James says in James 4, 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And that word submit in the Greek was a military term meaning to rank under. And it's in the passive form which speaks of the submission being voluntary. There's the problem. We have a choice. God does not force us to submit to him. Therefore, rank yourself under God. You have a choice here. And when you rank yourself under God, the devil's going to flee. We need to place our lives under the authority of God to submit to his will and obey him. And that truly is the first step, recognizing who God is and submitting to his own will, that he's in control. And that leads us to the second aspect of surrender or submission, and that's inward. It speaks of our heart. Again, here in John verse Uh, 29 in John chapter 3, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom uh, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, the joy of mine, this joy of mine is fulfilled. 
John the Baptist was joyful because he not only knew God's will for his life, but he was willing to submit to God's will. And there was great joy. His heart was right with God. He knew what God wanted. He knew what God desired, and he obeyed it. He did it. You see, he saw his position of being the best man at the wedding of Jesus and his bride, and he submitted to that. How awesome. You know, Paul in Romans 6, verses 16 and 17 put it like this. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. See, there's choices, two of them. Obey the Lord or disobey the Lord. And it comes from our heart. Obedience leads to freedom, joy, peace, and so on. Disobedience leads to bondage. You're a slave to what you're doing. And there's a price to pay if we refuse to submit to God's will, to surrender to his authority. You can be a slave to sin or a bond slave unto the Lord. Wow. Now, where your treasure is, guys, that's... Is, that's the thing you're going to do. For where your treasure is, Jesus says, there your heart will be also. What's the most important thing in your life? It needs to be the Lord. And isn't it interesting, the competition for things today? I mean, I hate to say it, but this is probably one of the biggest ones right here, these cell phones. You know, I, I don't consider myself a geek. But I use it all the time. And I've actually had to say, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to look at it. I'm not going to play with it. I'm not going to even do games on it. I'm gonna... The competition is so overwhelming sometimes. We have to be careful. You see, are we, can we become so busy we don't have time for the Lord? And I think the answer is, yeah, we can be. But you know what? What's most important to you? Because you will make time for it. You know, I found that out, you know, when I first came up to Manitowoc, oh man, 26 years ago now. um, And uh, I was working at St. Nicholas Hospital in Sheboygan in the ICU and overseeing the church. And weekends were crazy for me because weekends... I would work the PM shift because obviously it had to be off on a Sunday. So I'd work PMs on Friday, Saturday. You know, I'd get home at midnight. Sometimes I had to work longer till three in the morning. And then Sunday morning, I'm up at five. I get home at noon, I'd eat, and then I had to work and work to midnight or three in the morning again. I think, how did you do it? And I, I really, this is the only explanation I have for you. God gave me the power to do it. I, can't, I look at it now and go, oh my gosh, that's just crazy. Now, I was a lot younger 26 years ago. I'm sure that helped. But I think God was absolutely in there. And did I make time? Absolutely. Why? Because it was important. He was so important to me. I took that time. If the Lord is not your treasure, you're not going to make that time. You'll do your own thing. And even refusing to submit to his direction. So our surrender has to be upward with God. Inward in our hearts, 
And then it's outward. What do I mean? In our actions and the things we do. When submission being outward, our actions, it's what flows from our lives. And here's the thing. If you're not in tune with God, if your heart is not right, then what flows from your life is going to be fleshly. It's going to be ugly. And that's not a good thing. For John the Baptist, this is what his life was like. This is what he wanted manifested in his life, the things of God. He said, I must, he must increase, I must decrease. Isn't that what each of us want in our lives? Lord, less of me and more of you. I mean, the world's seen enough of me. It needs to see more of you in my life. Help me to manifest that. Especially in these days that we're living in. I mean, think about it. And I, I, I guess I could be wrong on this, but I don't think so. I, I think what we see happening in our nation and in this world today is they want to remove all hope. They want you to be discouraged. They want you to be hopeless. Why? Because in the end, they're going to have the answers. Let us help you. Ultimately, and we won't be here for this, but guess who's going to come up and rise up on the scene is the Antichrist. A world that is hopeless. Can you imagine all that's going on? You have all these Christians that disappear. Bad people, according to the New Age. We have to be purged out of here because we're causing all the trouble. And wars, famine, all these things going on. Nuclear holocaust, maybe this huge war in the Middle East. And here comes this man. I've got the answers, guys. I have the solution. I'm going to give you hope. Let me ask you this. Satan's come to kill and destroy lives, right? Who's the one that gives us hope? Jesus. He's a, this guy's a master counterfeiter, just like Satan is. We need to remember today that our hope is not going to be found in the government or this thing or that thing over there. Our hope. Actually, the blessed hope is our glorious, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we look forward to? This isn't our home. We're just passing through. We're just aliens and strangers. And I don't know about you, but man, over the last several months, I feel even more like a stranger in this world. I mean, the things that I hold on to that are dear to me, the world looks at and says, you are evil, you are hateful by holding on to those things. Wow. This is not my home. My citizenship is in heaven. And my only responsibility, because I'm in tune with God, my heart wants to serve him, my only responsibility is to love the people in this world into the kingdom of God by showing them Jesus Christ. That's the key for the days we're living in, guys. We are to be evangelists. And I realize we don't all have the gift of evangelism. There are some people that have it. But we all can share our faith by the way we live. You think about it. You look at people today, and thank God you know, people aren't always wearing masks, and you can see their faces because you can see what's going on. And if you see someone at the grocery store that is distraught, you can just talk with them. Is there something wrong? Is there, can I help you with something? Show that you care. You know, just don't go up to them and say, are you a believer? Because if not, you, know, you need to turn or burn. That's probably not a good evangelism tool. 
but you see someone who is hurting and you care about them like Jesus did. And you reach out to them and they may reject what you have to say, but you could say, hey, can I, is it okay if I pray for you? Most people will say, yeah, please, I need it. There's a lot of hurting people out there, guys. I'll give you a great example of someone who surrendered his life to the Father. That's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was crucified. He went into the garden sorrowful and distressed, which is hard for us to imagine, but I'll show you why. Because the cross here is only hours away, all that pain, the suffering, the separation from the Father as he bore the sins of the world was heavy upon his mind, heavy upon his heart. And I think the greatest spiritual battle that Jesus faced was not, you know, in the wilderness, but it was in the Garden of Gethsemane that night, a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Because the flesh was trying to persuade Jesus not to go to the cross, and the spirit was persuading Jesus to do the Father's will, to finish the work that was before him. And I'll just share with you, we know who won, but in Matthew 26, verse 39 He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Verse 42. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 44. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Wow. He went into the garden of Gethsemane in distress, agony, sweating drops of blood. But he leaves in peace. Why? because he submitted to the Father's will. And I believe it's true in our own lives. The problem too often for us is we know God's will. We just refuse to submit to it. And we wrestle with God. And we think we can win. And even if we could win, we'd still lose. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament? He wrestled with God. Jacob's name means heel catcher, conniver, deceiver, schemer. And that was matched in his actions, his life. And he had a twin brother who was slightly older than Jacob, maybe just minutes, named Esau. And when Esau was born, Jacob was holding on to his heel. I don't know, trying to pull him back in? I don't know what Jacob was thinking, right? But even in the womb, we're told that these guys are fighting. These boys are fighting in the womb. Talk about sibling rivalry, right? They're not even born yet, and they're fighting in there. Poor mom. And... As they grew, these Esau went hunting one day and got nothing. And he's really hungry, starving. He heads home, and Jacob's cooking some bean soup. It must have smelled pretty good because he wanted it really bad. And Jacob, the schemer, decided to give him this bowl of bean soup for the rights of the firstborn from Esau. Now, again, Esau was the firstborn. He had all the blessings of the firstborn. But God said, no, Jacob is going to be the one. What is Jacob doing here? He's trying to help God out. Did God need his help? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But, you know, we got to help God out because he needs it sometimes. And so 
later on, his father Isaac was very old, sick, nearly blind. And Isaac is going to give the blessing of the firstborn to Esau. And he tells Esau, go and get me some venison, bring it back, and then I'll give you the blessing of the firstborn. Bring me some good venison. So he did. Now, Jacob heard about this from his mom, disguised himself, received the blessing instead, tricked his dad. And when Esau found out he wanted to kill his brother Jacob, and Jacob flees to his uncle Laban's house, and he's there 20 years. It was just supposed to be a short time, 20 years before he returns home. On his way home, he's traveling with his wives, his children, all his servants and animals that he acquired at his uncle Laban's. And he's not sure if Esau still wants him dead. He's a little nervous. So he's scheming. He's plotting. He's coming up with a plan to see if his brother is still mad at him. And he sends his servants on ahead in just a a series of of, uh, different uh, groups with gifts to kind of figure out the situation, make Esau, Esau happy. And in Genesis 32, verses 24 and 28, Jacob wrestles with God. We're told, then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and prevailed. Now, please understand, Jacob didn't beat God in a wrestling match here. God allowed this. And Jacob wouldn't let go. He wouldn't surrender to God. And God cripples him. Takes his hip out of joint. You go, what is up with that? Well, again, you have to understand the heart of Jacob, right? He's a schemer. He runs away. He tries to escape from his problems, scheme out of his problems. And God has his attention. Jacob can't run anymore. His hip's out of joint. Now he's limping around, right? And God has his attention, like I said. And God changes his name from Jacob, heel catcher, conniver, schemer, to Israel, governed by God, or God rules. And it's interesting as you look in the Genesis and you see where Jacob is used or Israel is used, look at what's going on in his life. When he's Jacob, it's usually a fleshly thing that he's involved in. When it's Israel, yeah, it's God's working through him. It's kind of interesting how God does that. So he lost this battle, but he really won. There was a story back from February of 2002, a man named John reported to the police that he'd been beaten up and robbed in the parking lot of Wisconsin Casino. And the police arrived on the scene and they looked at his face. It was bashed in. It was bruised, cut up. They took a report of all that happened. Everything seemed to fit the picture. Just Just a brutal beating and robbery. Then a few days later, there was a videotape that showed up at the police station And it was a little different, the story now. You see, as the police viewed the parking lot surveillance video, they saw this man, John, beat himself up by banging his head against the light pole, smudging dirt on his cheeks. 
Then he went to look at the damage of his face in the mirror of his car. It wasn't enough, and he went and banged his face more on the light pole. What was he doing? Was he crazy? Why did he do this? Well, the rest of the story. John had lost so much money at the casino, he concocted this story to try and fool his wife. And the videotape busted him. Now, here's the problem. We don't have any videotape footage of what John looked like after he went home and spoke to his wife. I think that was probably a worse beating. But again, what situations are we in? And really not knowing what we do, what to do. Maybe God has spoken to us, but we don't want to do what he wants to do. And we're trying to scheme and figure a way out of it. And you have to stop wrestling with God. You have to submit to his will for your life. You have to let your actions speak of where your heart and mind are at in the Lord. I can't tell you, there's been several times that God told me that I needed to confront someone or do something. And you know how you know when God tells you something, it's probably not going to be a good thing that you have to do. But I knew exactly what he said. And I had to do it because he told me. And if I avoided it, I would have caused more problems for myself. And believe me, the situations were very, very tough. But I had to do it. What does it look like to be totally submitted to God? Well, I like what Paul says in Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21. He says, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're in tune with God, when your heart's right with God, when your actions are going to show that, and that's what he says. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Do you see what's manifested in our lives as we submit to the Lord, these beautiful things. And it's interesting because as he closes with submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord, you know what he talks about next? Wives submitting to their husbands. Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for it. Children obeying their parents. Slaves and bosses working together. But you can't do that unless you submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. First him, our heart is right, and then others. It's not all about us. Now, I think if we are struggling with this, and you know, some of us may be in a situation right now where it is difficult, that God wants us to do something and we're really struggling with it. We have to be like John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. It's all about you, Lord. And I want to do what's right. I want to do what's pleasing. You have to become greater and greater, and I have to become less and less. That flesh life has to melt away so people can see Jesus in us. And again, you have to look upward unto God, submit to him. He's in control. Inwardly in your heart, It's in tune with God. And then outwardly submitting to the Lord in our actions, how we treat people, how we live. You see, again, I I think we live in, to me, it's one of the most exciting times ever. I always thought 
as a young Christian, man, it would have been so cool to live when the church age got started. They had a lot of difficulties. Don't get me wrong. But I thought, man, what a neat thing. Here's the church is getting started. Bam. I think, and I could be wrong, but I think we are getting close to that generation that's closing out church history. And what an honor, what a privilege. God is saying, you are that generation. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. Bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to this lost and dying world. Let them come to know the Lord. Because if we don't submit to him, we're going to be in trouble. And the last point is the correct perspective. And we have to have the correct perspective. Again, John chapter 3, look at verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John is telling us here that God has sent his son, Jesus, to become flesh and dwell among us. And what he speaks, he speaks with authority because he's not only been with the Father, but they're one. He's God. And God the Father gave God the Son in his incarnation the fullness of the Spirit. It says God does not give the Spirit by measure. In other words, he doesn't measure it out to him. It's all his. And thus the conclusion, whoever believes in Jesus receives him by faith into their hearts has everlasting life. And whoever doesn't will see the wrath of God come upon them. The judgment for sin. And, you know, I realize that people don't want to hear about sin and the wrath of God and all that. You know, on Thursday evenings we're... we're, in Revelation, we're in chapter 6 right now, and now we've got the seal judgments coming, and then, you know, we've got the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments. Man, there is, just in the seal judgments, one quarter of the earth's population is destroyed, maybe two billion people. Can you imagine? Do we need to talk about the wrath of God? Yeah, we have to be like Noah and warn the people before judgment comes. God's wrath is real, and so is his grace. And he, he God gets no pleasure in the death of the wicked. None. And he says, please turn from your wicked ways and live. And that's, that should be our message. The wrath of God is not easy. And I like what Barclay said. He said, it's not that God sends wrath upon him. It's that he brings that wrath upon himself. He's only getting, man is only getting what they deserve. We all deserve death. But because of God's grace, he's given us heaven. Wow. Everlasting life with him. And keep in mind, John the Baptist and even Jesus is dealing with the Jews who were committed to the law, keeping it for their salvation. And yet, did you notice there's nothing about keeping the law, obeying the golden rule, going to church, tithing, doing the best you can, working your way into heaven? No. The reason you see that is because it's, that's not how you get in. John said in verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Believe, not work your way in. It's simple. 
And if you don't have the correct perspective, then you're going to miss the whole point. And John has the correct perspective here. You see, we need to truly believe all that God has told us in his word from Genesis through Revelation. And if we truly believe that Jesus is Almighty God who has come to save us from our sins, if we truly believe that God knows all and has the best for our lives, then why can't we give to him our absolute surrender? You see, it truly is a matter of trust. Do I believe that he loves me more than I will ever know? Yes, I know. That's what the Bible tells me. Do I believe he knows all things? Absolutely, that's what the Bible tells me. Do I believe that the work he began in me, he will complete? Absolutely, that's what the Bible tells me. Why can't I surrender fully? Because the flesh gets in the way. And I'll tell you, when it does, we're telling God, I think you're wrong on this one. Keep that in your mind every time God's showing you something and you're disagreeing with him. God, I think you're wrong. Because hopefully that'll be a red flag. Wait a minute, God's never wrong. And I need to listen and obey. I need absolute surrender. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your spirit just showing us the things we need to learn. And Lord, not an easy subject. But Lord, I truly believe this is the message that we each need to hear tonight. And we thank you that you are so patient and long-suffering with us that you will continually work in our lives until you complete that work. You never give up, and I'm so thankful. Lord, bless these people. Guide them through their evening and their day tomorrow and the rest of the week. Bless them and speak to their hearts and show them the things they need to do, the people that you've brought across their path to share Jesus with. We love you, thank you, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.